Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 is where we will be this morning as we continue on in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. We are heading towards the end here. Uh, and just a heads up, a fair warning. Uh, this passage that we'll be in and then the next passage we'll be in, we've really only got a few weeks left in Mark, um, are some of the darkest times of Jesus' life. Um, and so we'll see some of the most intense suffering that Jesus has gone through. And so maybe not the most uplifting of passages uh, at all times, but plenty for us to learn and plenty for us even, I think, to celebrate and rejoice in in the midst of that. We'll see this morning Jesus suffer and suffer intensely. Uh, and the truth is um, that we live in a world that is full of suffering. Uh, I just got a recent um, edition of Time Magazine, and it was featured on the refugee crisis. Um, and, of course, uh, someone who tries to know a little bit about the news and politics and world events, but tries not to get so tangled up that I've become crazy about it, right? I had known there was a refugee crisis and known... You know the different political uh, opinions about how to react to the refugee crisis, and um, until you know flipping through this issue, right, I hadn't seen a lot of faces, and I hadn't heard a lot of stories, and I hadn't seen real hard figures, right. But um, if you don't know, right, we're living through one of the um, greatest times in history in terms of people fleeing from war-torn, um, oppressed, uh, poverty-stricken areas. Um, these few years are probably going to go down in the history books, um, like World War II, as we're seeing an influx of people um, just trying to leave the misery that is their lives. Um, there's lots of suffering in our world globally. Um, you and I in Sugarland, Texas, aren't exempt from this. Um, we go through suffering, um, whether it is relational, right? We're having trouble with uncertain people in our lives, our, our marriage is struggling, um, whether it's sickness. Um, my great uncle Dan uh, was out the other day running, uh, just jogging in the morning and collapsed, had a heart attack, and was found by, uh, you know, a good Samaritan who started doing CPR and they took him to the hospital. His heart's fine now, and he's breathing fine now, um, but we don't know how long he was without oxygen, right, while he was collapsed on the ground, and so right now he's in a coma. Uh, we're not sure if he's going to wake up, and so uh, my family is suffering. Right? And just in this time of anxiety. We live in a world of suffering. As Christians, uh, I don't think you and I are exempt from suffering. Uh, in fact, I think the scriptures would say the opposite. That if anything, we might perhaps go through more suffering um, than other people. We should expect suffering. We're told in scriptures, don't be surprised when these trials and temptations come upon you. Um, the one that you follow suffered. He was the suffering servant. And you in his footsteps will suffer as well. But the question is, how do we respond to suffering? What gets us through suffering? Um, now, what most of us do naturally is we try to avoid suffering. Um, I think we're wired in a way, just as humans, to avoid pain, uh, to avoid conflict, right? Uh, there is a disease where you can actually not feel pain, like the receptors just don't work. Um, and on surface, right, that sounds awesome, right? Um, you do a whole lot of stuff that you've never done before. Now, in reality, it's a really scary disease. You have to have someone watch you 24-7. You have to have someone inspect you three times a day, your entire body, because you don't know what you have done to yourself. Um, you might have cut off your arm, right, without knowing. There's a kind of a 
biological reason for us to avoid pain, right? It tells us what's bad. Um, we live, I think, in a culture that doubly encourages that sort of avoidance, right? Um, anything that might take sacrifice or suffering or might have a little pain involved in it, um, we're encouraged to avoid and go seek out immediate gratification. Go do something that's easy and it's in the moment. I think this is how a lot of addictions start out, right? Instead of addressing the deeper issue or the deeper pain in your life, you self-medicate with something else. Um, we might say there are like first-order pleasures and second-order pleasures. Uh, first-order pleasure would be this immediate gratification. Um, so looking at Facebook or watching a show or a movie on Netflix or eating or drinking, right? These are things that immediately gratify us. Um, they involve no pain or conflict. Um, then we might say, though, there are deeper, more hardly earned second-order pleasures. Um, these are things that you have to employ um, the uh, technique of delayed gratification for, right? Um, if we were sitting down uh, in our grandparents' house, we might say that's what's wrong with kids these days, right? They don't know how to... Uh, wait for gratification. They want everything now. They want all their pleasure now. Um, in reality, right, anyone who's written a paper knows what delayed gratification is, right? You have to deny yourself of first order pleasures. So I'm not going to check Facebook and I'm not going to get on the internet and I'm not going to go out with friends. And instead I'm going to do this thing right now, which is boring and tough and hard. And ultimately though, it will result in this higher level of joy, this higher level of pleasure with a uh, paper well done, a good grade received, scholarship um, well accomplished. Um, so when it comes to suffering, um, the question for, for you and I as Christians and as we watch Jesus suffer is how do we suffer? Um, how do we suffer well? How do we suffer in a Christ-like way, in a God-glorifying way? And then how do we suffer in a way where we don't try to avoid it and try to run away from it? but we instead embrace it for what God is going to do in using it in our lives uh, and allow him to take us to these second-order pleasures, um, to these deeper, um, more beautiful truths um, that perhaps are not possible to achieve without some refining, without some suffering. Um, so in our passage this morning, we're picking up in, in Mark 14, verse 26. Uh, we'll see one of Jesus' darkest moments as he lived as a human. Um, we have just read the Passover account. Jesus has the Last Supper with his disciples. He institutes this um, Last Supper. And now in verse 26 we read, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Peter is always the first one to talk, very confident in himself. Even though they all fall away, these other ten fools, I'll stay with you. I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter said emphatically. Um, we'll see. One of the things I, I want to say this morning, I think your English Bibles underplay a lot of the... Uh, force of the Greek words here in these passages. This, he said emphatically, is Peter rebuking Jesus. Peter's basically telling Jesus is a liar, right? Like, you do not know who I am, all right? Uh, you do not know the strength and the endurance that I am. 
he says emphatically, if I'm going to die with you, even then I won't deny you. And then they all said the same. So um, the disciples and Jesus know that they're heading towards a difficult evening um, that's going to involve suffering and eventually Jesus' betrayal and arrest. Um, Jesus has predicted that they'll all fall away. Uh, even though they don't necessarily believe him, he knows that's what's going to happen. But theoretically, what the disciples should do is be faithful and follow him. They should get arrested with him. Um, like Peter said, they should be faithful, even die if that's what it takes in order to not deny Jesus. Now, at this point, we start to play the game of hypotheticals, right? What would have happened if the disciples hadn't betrayed Jesus? If they were arrested with him? What would have happened if all 11 of them were crucified um, alongside of Jesus? Um, now, we're so used to the story the way it actually happened in reality, right? And it seems set up perfectly. Jesus is crucified, he resurrects, and he already has this team of people, right, that can be transformed and go out into the world and accomplish his mission. Um, but perhaps if the disciples had been faithful, maybe they would have been crucified and resurrected as well, right? We don't know. Um, and there's only so long that you can play with hypotheticals before it probably becomes distracting. Um, but we know what the disciples should have done, which is stayed faithful with Jesus, not denied him. Um, but we know what they will do through Jesus' prediction. As we keep reading in verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. I'll just point out for you, Mark in his gospel is usually very vague about places. And he starts to get very specific here towards Jesus' passion story. Um, the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, this is because for Mark's early readers, these are places they know. These are places they can go. This is their real life. This is their real world. They went to Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, things, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak and again he went away and prayed saying the same words and again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him what do you say at that point i'm sorry no no um, he came the third time so he goes and prays and comes back a third time and said to them you're still sleeping and taking rest this is enough the hour has come the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners rise let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, again, I'd, I'd want to let you know here, the, the English is downplaying a lot of the emotion, a lot of the force behind the original Greek in terms of this night of suffering that Jesus goes through here. Um, he takes Peter, James, and John. So he tells the disciples to sit here. Um, and then he takes the three disciples closest to him, his inner three, Peter, James, and John, Peter being probably his best friend, if you were going to use those terms, um, he takes them in farther with him. They have experienced all kinds of things that the other disciples haven't been privy to. They were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
and got to see Jesus in all of his glory, and got to see Moses and Elijah there um, talking to Jesus. He brings his friends, he brings his most trusted allies with him, um, because he's starting to break. And, and, and let's not underplay the suffering that Jesus goes through in this moment. He's greatly distressed. He's troubled. This is Jesus starting to shake. This is Jesus' confidence starting to falter. This surely had to have been tough for Peter, James, and John to watch. If you've ever um, followed or been led by a leader who's very charismatic and confident, uh, and then all of a sudden you see them start to doubt, and you see them start to be not so sure about the plan, uh, it makes you not so sure, right? Like, oh, I felt better when you were on top of this, right? When you were gung-ho about this. Um, Jesus starts to get distressed and troubled. Peter, James, and John, among all of the disciples, should know something is seriously wrong. Um, and should know their role here is to sit and watch and pray with Jesus uh, as he endures this night of decision-making. He says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Again, um, this is better translated, my soul is only sorrowful. All that exists within me right now is sorrow, is angst, is despair. And this even to death is, I'm not sure that I'll survive the intensity of this emotion. I don't know that I'll be able to leave Gethsemane. That's how overwhelmed I feel in this moment. And he went a little farther and he fell on the ground. The Greek says he threw himself on the ground. And he prayed. And he prayed, if it's possible, this hour may pass from him. We also shouldn't diminish Jesus' request here. Jesus' prayer for this not to happen, for the suffering and crucifixion that's about to occur, um, is not a pretend prayer. As if Jesus really is okay with the plan, right? Um, but just to kind of act like he's human, he's going to put on this kind of scene. Jesus gets an Emmy for acting here uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, no, in this moment, Jesus sincerely does not want this to happen. He does not want to be betrayed. He does not want to go to the cross. He does not want to be arrested. And he prays to the Father, like every child does, and says... Take this away from me. Let's not do it this way. You've got to imagine there's some begging and pleading going on. This is surely not all of Jesus' prayer. He says, all things are possible for you. Um, we know that it was possible, right? Jesus, faced with this suffering, could have gone to a first order pleasure. He could have gone home for the night. We know in other Gospels he says, I could have called down an army of angels killed all the people who had come to arrest me. Um, Jesus is not forced in any sense to go through with the plan that the Father had for him here. Um, but notice, even in the request, even in the prayerful struggling, Jesus wants to submit his will to the Father's. Not what I will, but what you will. Um, now, this is not an easy, I think, conclusion that Jesus comes to. Notice he goes back and forth and has to struggle three times throughout the night. Um, this phrase and the ability to say this phrase, not what I will, but what you will, is only the result of people who have prayed and struggled for hours and hours and hours, who have determined what their will is 
and receive what the Father's will is, is that even if they're in conflict, I will align my will with the Father's. And so Jesus, in prayerful submission, um, submits to the Father's will. When he goes to Peter, notice the two words, two names right beside themselves. He goes, says to Peter, and then calls him Simon. You remember, Peter's the nickname that Jesus gave to Simon. It means Rocky. When Jesus um, comes now to his best friend, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark, the only time that Jesus directly addresses someone by their name. Notice he has no time for nicknames or titles. He comes back and he says, Simon, you going to stay up? You going to pray with me? You of all people, man, you said that, that you were going to be faithful tonight, and I told you you weren't. You of all people need to be praying strength that you will endure this temptation and it happens multiple times and finally Jesus done with the struggle aligns his will with the father and says the hours come I'm about to be betrayed let's go the betrayer is at hand now this one particular moment in Jesus life is a very powerful one for me is one that I've always very much um, related to. Um, Raymond Brown says this combination of human suffering and divine strengthening and solitary self-giving has done much to make Jesus loved by those who believe in him. Um, now this is not how an ancient ideal hero should face his death. Um, crying on the ground. In other gospels we're told he's bleeding. Um, he's sweating blood, which is a legitimate medical phenomenon that happens um, when people reach a certain emotional and uh, stress capacity. Um, this is not particularly how we should imagine God going to face his fate. But this is Jesus sharing in our deepest moments of humanity, in our deepest moments of suffering. Um, the ideal way to die um, in the ancient world was seen by Socrates. Uh, he drinks po poison and he calmly chats with his friends until he dies. Right? He's very stoic about it. He meets his fate willingly, head on. Um, years, a couple hundred years before Jesus, the Maccabean martyrs, these Jewish men um, fighting for freedom, um, faced their death with courage. Um, instead of crying and... Um, wrestling in prayer, they stand boldly while they're tortured uh, and mock their tormentors. Um, Christians after Jesus face their deaths much more stoically and much more joyfully than Jesus does. We, we might ask, what is Jesus necessarily afraid of? I think he is afraid of and worried about suffering. He's about to take place as physical suffering. I think in a sense, theologically, the cup that he's about to drink stands for the wrath of God. He knows that something else much more dramatic than physical suffering is about to happen to him. The Father's going to abandon him on the cross. He'll cry out, why have you abandoned me? So perhaps Jesus has a much more than mere death um, to struggle with in this moment. Um, Celsus, one of the biggest second century critics of Christianity, um, used to point to this moment to make fun of Christians. Um, he would say, how can you view this person as divine who mourns and laments and prays to escape death? Um, 
people much less important than him uh, have been able to do so much more stoically and bravely. Um, Jesus here, though, finds himself in great anguish and great suffering. Um, for Christians, for you and I, when we answer this question, how should we face suffering? Um, I think the first answer is that we should embrace it um, or face it knowing that Jesus has experienced it as well. Knowing that he stands empathetic with us. Um, so let me tell you why this scene in particular is moving to me. Let me set the scene for you. Uh, I'm 17 years old in the summer between my junior and senior year in high school. And I am at the height of my life so far as a 17-year-old. I've got girls all over me. Um, that never changed. Uh, <laughs> I'm working a great job for my grandparents, a desk job. Pays three times as much as my friends' little real retail jobs. I'm on an AAU basketball team. I'm just generally happy. Life's going well. I'm at the eye doctor to get contacts because glasses are for losers. No offense. Everyone wearing glasses. Um, but I've always been a little squeamish around doctors, and right there was a lot of doubt around my family and doctors that I would ever be able to touch my eye or put anything in my eye. Um, so I had put the contacts in, and we'd taken them out. And with any kind of eye correction, right, whether you put on glasses for the first time or you're putting on contacts, it can be a little disorienting, right? It's a new experience for you. You're seeing new things. It can kind of be maybe a little overwhelming a little confusing, a little dizzying. So we're at the eye doctor. I've tried the contacts on. We've got my prescription. Um, and all of a sudden, standing there, nothing real dramatic happening, right? I mean, the scene itself was over. If I had any kind of nervousness about trying on the contacts, it's all over. It's been a success. My heart starts beating. I'm beating faster and faster and faster. And then all of a sudden, I start to feel this pit in my stomach, this nauseousness kind of overtake me, and I hear this ringing in my ears, and eventually it gets so loud that I can't hear anything else, it's just this ringing in my ears, and I'm noticing that I'm starting to sweat, I can see the sweat go through my clothes, um, and then I lose my vision, maybe about 15 seconds, I'm standing there with all this happening, unable to see anything, I remember my last words were, I'm blind, I can't see anymore. Uh, and the next thing I know, about 45 seconds later, I wake up, I'm on the floor, there's an oxygen mask on my face, um, and I have thrown up everywhere, and it looks like I've jumped into a pool, my clothes are soaked with sweat all the way through, and everyone in the office is just like, what in the world just happened? Uh, has this ever happened to me before? What's going on? They're asking me what happened, I'm like, I don't know, I just stand in there, and I started feeling bad. Uh, like, how do you feel now? I'm like a lot better than I did two minutes ago. <laughs> kind of feels like my body reset itself. I'm, I'm a lot better now. Like, can you walk? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm fine now. Um, and so we passed it off as just this weird encounter, right? I was not worried about it in the least. My family members weren't worried about it. The doctor wasn't worried about it. We figured, right, it just had something to do with me putting in the contacts for the first time. And I was more anxious than I thought and those kind of things. Uh, and so... I mean, it really was not a second thought to me. Next day, we get up. I'm on my way to work. My mother's driving. And she works there as well. About halfway there, all of a sudden, my heart starts to pound. And all of a sudden, my ears start to ring. I start to get nauseous. And I'm noticing I'm starting to sweat. And I lean over, and I go, I don't feel very good. And all of a sudden, I can't see anymore. And then the next thing I know, I wake up. We're in the car. The seat's laid back. 
my clothes are sweated through, there's throw up in the car, and we're on the side of the road, and she's going, what in the world? What kind of drugs have you been doing behind my back? I'm like, I've not been doing anything, I swear. So I go spend the day at my grandmother's house instead of going to work and spend the next few days there. And over time, what happens is um, these episodes start occurring up four or five times a day. Um, and I didn't have language to put to them at the time. Uh, but later I was told this is what you would call a panic attack. Um, at the time, I wouldn't have associated any sort of fear or anxiety with what was happening, right? There was no immediate cause of nervousness. Um, once it started happening, I started to worry that something was wrong with me, right? Like, come out of a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. Um, what happens, though, if you have panic attacks and you have them over and over again? Um, in hindsight, the language does seem useful, right? It is kind of like your body going into fight-or-flight mode uh, and eventually reaching such an extreme of panic and fear that it just shuts down uh, and restarts. And you do feel quite better after it restarts. Um, what happens if you experience this over and over and over again is you start to um, develop um, anxiety or panic about panic attacks. Um, so it's not just the episodes themselves that worry you, right? It's every second between each episode. Um, when is the next one going to be? Is the next one going to be worse? Am I actually going to die during the next one? Um, what will be happening during the next one? I developed um, what's called panic disorder, right? Which is basically where you're trapped in the cycle of panic attacks and then panic over the ensuing panic attacks. Uh, and that developed into agoraphobia, where I couldn't leave the house for about three months um, because, right, I don't want to be out in public and have a panic attack. I need this kind of safe place where I can confine myself. Um, now, I was treated for panic disorder with the agoraphobia. came some pretty extreme depression. Uh, I've been treated for both panic disorder and depression. Um, I've very publicly always said, though, and been honest with the fact that I still suffer from anxiety and depression. Um, and not in like a cute sense, right, where sometimes I get nervous and sometimes I'm a little bummed out. Um, but clinical anxiety and clinical depression. Um, and actually, out of all the things I've been critiqued for as a pastor, uh, people have told me that I look stupid, I wear bad clothes. <laughs> people have told me I talk too much about the Bible. Um, people have told me that I say bad words like crap and stuff that I shouldn't say. Uh, I'm too young. Um, I play rap visit music videos during service. Um, the number one thing actually I've been critiqued about is that I've been too honest with my struggles with anxiety and depression. Um, uh, a surprising amount of people find that very threatening. Um, and say as a Christian leader, you should project a more confident uh, and less suffering image. To which I say no. I refuse to do that. I know too many pastors who committed suicide. Uh, in fact, I know too many people in our world, in our congregation, and in our community who suffer with anxiety and depression. Um, and sometimes feel like they're bad Christians for doing so. And I want to say you're not a bad Christian um, for suffering from that. Um, now, I would like to say I think I suffer much better from depression than I did six years ago, and much better from anxiety than I did six years ago. All that to say... I know what it's like to feel like there's nothing left except for sorrow. I know what it's like to start shaking and be greatly troubled and distressed. And I know what it's like to lay down thinking, I don't know if I'm ever getting up. I don't know if this is the end for me. And like Jesus, I know what it's like to get up 
two hours later, or sometimes 16 hours later, and to move on to the next day, to the next week. When I see Jesus in this, in this moment, I see a Jesus who's experienced what I experience. When you and I suffer as humans, we, we, I think, first should turn to the one who suffered already, who knows our suffering, who's empathetic towards our suffering, and then take a cue from him with how to respond to our suffering. So unlike the disciples who betray him, Jesus works through his suffering and aligning his will with the Father. Um, so Christologically, theologically, something very important happens in this moment. Um, so the Son of God, in the Incarnation, around 5 B.C., when Jesus is born, takes on a human nature. So we say Jesus is one person with two natures. Um, the person, the Son of God, with a divine nature, all that it means to be God, he has now has all that it means to be human as well. And so there are two wills, classically, in Jesus, a divine will and a human will. And what's happening, more than in any other scene right here, is Jesus' human will is being perfectly aligned with his divine will, with the divine will, with the Father's will. He's making something special happen for humanity. He's creating new opportunities for humanity. He's the perfect human who's able to take his shaky and unconfident will and through prayerful struggle align it in perfect submission to the Father's will. And that's the example I believe is set for you and I. I believe he's able to do this because Jesus makes a distinction between first-order pleasures and second-order pleasures. Um, because Jesus realizes that he shouldn't try to run away from this pain. As we keep reading in 43, immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Uh, the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him, and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, um, in the Gospel of Mark, again, this is the only time you see a greeting between Jesus and somebody else. So this is a very common greeting in first century Israel, um, to, to kiss someone on the cheek. Uh, it's a very intimate greeting, a greeting of friends. Um, not once it's described between Jesus or anyone else, except for in this moment, where this intimate greeting serves as most ultimate of betrayals. Um, he's betrayed, they seize him. And then a couple of interesting things. One of those who stood by a bystander drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, um, which is just interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, one, how do you have a sword and cut off someone's ear? It's that bad aim mixed with some juju matrix like defense <laughs> movements. Uh, I'm not sure. We're told in other Gospels Jesus heals the guy's ear. It's not here in Mark, but you've got to imagine that that guy had a very interesting story to tell his wife that night. <laughs> I went to arrest some dude. My ear got cut off. He put it back on. I'm not so sure if I should have arrested him now. I need to rethink a lot of my life decisions. Um, and up until this point, up until this week when I really was studying this passage... I always just found that kind of an anomaly. John's gospel identifies this man as Peter. Perhaps Mark here doesn't use Peter's name for one of two reasons. Maybe for once, Mark is trying to protect Peter's reputation. He sure doesn't do it before. Peter goes through the mud a lot in Mark's gospel. And maybe, too, Mark is the first gospel written. Maybe um, Mark is trying to protect Peter from being arrested for this incident. Um, and so doesn't want to identify him 
by name. Um, but I found out that uh, cutting off one's ear, so this is considered a servant, slave of the high priest, we should actually think of that as like an intern uh, for the high priest. It would have been someone who probably would have wanted to be a priest and then maybe a high priest himself one day. Think of like an intern at the Capitol Hill uh, um, at Congress, someone who was there to make sure you know, the high priest's will was carried out. Um, actually, priests could not serve. You couldn't be a priest if your ear was cut off. Um, you were ritually impure. And there's lots of examples in Judaism, in ancient Judaism, where one would actually go and cut off someone's ear just so they could not go be a priest and be a high priest. And so perhaps there's some, some symbolic um, nature to the fact that his ear cut off, right? To the fact that this man coming to arrest Jesus is not fit to serve as a mediator between God and between man. Um, he's on the wrong side of the equation. Um, in any case, he cuts off the ear. Jesus says to them, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And it was almost like the disciples were waiting for that cue. That the scriptures be fulfilled. And they ran. They fled. And his closest friends, who hours ago were saying, even though it means our death, we're going to stay by you, are gone into the middle of the night. Now one person remains with him. A young man follows him. Many people think this young man is Mark. It's the only gospel who mentions him. Uh, so it's just, he's making his own cameo here in the gospel. Um, one man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Um, whether or not this is Mark, this man surely serves symbolically to represent the fact that finally everyone has deserted Jesus. And in an ironic twist where Jesus has called people to leave everything and follow him now this young man has left everything not to follow him but to betray him to leave him to run away we'll see this white cloth again at the resurrection scene let's keep this young man and the linen cloth he leaves behind uh, in the back of your mind for a few weeks from now um, turn with me though to Hebrews chapter 5 so the book of Hebrews actually will interpret this event for us. And I think in so doing, it gives us a clue to um, how we should respond to suffering. We should not, like the disciples, avoid it and run away from it. Um, we should recognize that Jesus has suffered as well and find solace and comfort in that. And then I want to look at why Jesus goes through the suffering. Why he avoids this first order pleasure for the second order pleasure. Verse 7 in Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was his son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It was a very interesting language. In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Again, language we might not use about the Son of God. He learned obedience. I think this is referencing to the moment where Jesus lines up his human will perfectly with the divine will. He learns obedience. And how does he do it? Through suffering. It's through suffering that he's able to carry out God's plan. And being made perfect, not morally perfect in the sense that Jesus was lacking anything. This Greek word teleos um, has a sense of completion or perfection. The goal being reached. 
Um, and having reached that goal, he did what became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The reason Jesus is able ultimately to align his will with the Father's will, even if it means suffering, is because he knows the Father's heart. And the Father's heart is good. And the Father's heart is to work out all things, even suffering, for the good of those who love him and are called for him. And Jesus knew that this momentary time of suffering would lead him to be able to be the source of eternal salvation for all who follow him. Again, if we flip just a couple pages to Hebrews chapter 12, um, we see this again repeated. 12 verse 1, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12 says Jesus endured the cross because he could see the beauty after it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So in a world full of suffering, all kinds of suffering, big types of suffering, little types of suffering. How might we suffer? How might we respond to suffering? Well, I think the first thing that's key to do is to not avoid suffering. By avoiding suffering, you might find yourself avoiding the long-term goals God has for you. The long-term pleasures He has for you. The things that you might only find after a time of refine, refinement, after a time of struggle, after a time of pain and sacrifice. And how should we go through suffering? I think we should look to the one who has suffered already and know that we have one who understands, one who stands with us. Then how should we approach suffering? How can we have the courage to face it? And go through it. Well, perhaps like Jesus, we might, through prayerful submission, be able to say, Not my will, but your will be done. Knowing that God's will, even if it leads through a path of suffering, a path of death, a path of agony, ultimately leads to life, resurrection, joy, and salvation. Like Jesus, may we find ourselves refined through these nights of prayer where we struggle and plead. Unlike the disciples, may we be better friends to each other when one of us needs watch and needs prayer. May we stay up with them and we pray for them and watch for them. And like Jesus, may we develop the habits the virtues and beliefs necessary to even in the midst of agonizing pain say not my will but your will be done knowing that the father's will no matter how much pain and suffering it might involve is always a good one would you pray with me